This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. podcast. Standing in for James E. Ford, I'm your guest host, Rodney D. Pierce, classroom teacher and 2019 North Carolina Equity Fellow. Today we'll be talking with Dr. David Cooper. Dr. Cooper is a former teacher, research fellow, and a retired professor from Elon University. He recently wrote a paper called West Asley Andrew Report, The Missing Pages, that looks at how race was absent from major discussions of this crucial piece of education law. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So we typically begin just by asking for you to tell us about yourself, who you are and how you got into this work. Okay, Uh, I'll try to keep it succinct. Uh, Jump in on me if if I start to ramble on, Rodney, okay? You have you have total permission to do that. Um, I'm a I'm a product of public schools, grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, The schools when I attended there were segregated. Um, I think I was aware of it, but at a fairly superficial level. Um, and uh, after that uh, time, I gradually became more and more aware of issues of racial discrimination and, and uh, the need for some attention in that area. Uh, as I became a professional educator, uh, I started teaching in public schools was a special ed teacher, um, uh, found that I had the most success working with children who had serious emotional and behavioral uh, disabilities or uh, problems, and uh, ended up doing research and teaching on uh, that topic, but then also the education of teachers. Um, I attended graduate Uh, school at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, which is what got me here originally back in 1978. Um, Was away for 25 years at the University of Maryland as an assistant professor and eventually associate dean. Uh, Managed to get uh, my wife and I back to North Carolina uh, in 2009 when a position opened at Elon University, which I was uh, pleased to take. uh, during the time that I was at Elon, I was uh, expected by the university administrators to get involved in North Carolina education politics and policies. Uh, and I was pleased to be able to participate in a number of, of, of ways. Uh, I was a member of Governor Purdue's Education Transformation Commission. Uh, I also was a participant in Leadership North Carolina. Um, and th- uh, through those uh, opportunities was able to meet a number of people who were engaged uh, in education policy work and in fact actually met Judge Manning um, uh, when he was still presiding over the Leandro case. So I I had a fairly rapid introduction to the Leandro issues and stayed pretty closely connected to it over time. Um, Fast forward a little bit to 2015 when I was uh, on my way to work at Elon, 
and I often listen to podcasts. One was a This American Life podcast, and I just got lucky one day and happened to hear Nicole Hannah-Jones speaking uh, on the This American Life show um, about uh, the topic of school desegregation um, in the light of the Michael Brown murder in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, Nicole made the case at that time that desegregation was the only educational intervention that had ever been shown to um, close uh, what she referred to as the achievement gap, in which I understand um, from listening to uh, James and, and others that we're now calling an opportunity gap. I think that's an improvement in our terminology. But it was that story that really set me on fire to work on the issue of desegregation in North Carolina. Uh, and that's been my essentially my full-time educational occupation uh, since 2015. Um, the culmination of that work was the publication of the Missing Pages uh, several weeks ago, uh, and uh, it's a it's a pleasure for me to be able to um, have your attention uh, uh, on that uh, paper, but more importantly to appreciate the work that you all, uh, as the Equity Fellows Creed and the um, Freedom Hill, yeah, yeah. Um, just listen to that conversation, and I appreciate the the work that you all are doing. So that's a, um, a long-winded answer to your question. I hope it's helpful. Yes, sir. Now, for our listeners out there, can you tell us what is the Leandro case, and why is it important for students and families in North Carolina? Wow. Uh, there are plenty of, of more succinct sources of information that people can go to. There's a lot on the internet, but I'll do my best uh, to, uh, to, to condense it. Um, state of North Carolina funds public education through a combination of state, local, and a small amount of federal uh, funding. Um, the, the lion's share of the funding comes from the state. And in that sense, it is equitably distribute, distributed um, across the uh, districts. Um, however, localities um, uh, supplement the state funding um, uh, to the extent that they are willing and able to do that. And uh, this produces uh, large disparities from one end of the state to the other. Um, it was those disparities that were the focus of the Leandro lawsuit, um, and the the argument being made was uh, uh, that uh, despite the fact that the state of North Carolina uh, was attempting to equitably distribute resources, it was those local differences that, that made it impossible for some districts to provide um, the same degree of educational opportunity and resources as others. Um, the, um, the case was not about race, um, uh, and uh, so equitable distribution of resources um, uh, was uh, addressed by the plaintiffs in this case um, uh, simply as a, uh, an issue to be tackled for all students. 
Now we know that the impact on students of color, uh, because they tend to be overrepresented in the uh, economic areas that are disadvantaged, um, but it was a resource issue, uh, not a racial issue that was primarily the focus of the Leandro lawsuit. All right, thank you, sir. Next question is now, in your document, you allege that a sound basic education, which was the initial ruling, is not good enough, particularly for black students and other students of color, which you just kind of talked about, you know, the report not specifically talking about race. Now tell us why you say that's not good enough for black students and other students of color. A uh, good question, thank you. Um, I think the first consideration is that sound basic education is not, despite its, its wording, is not an educational concept. It's a legal concept. And uh, as it has been applied both in North Carolina and in the um, other states where it has become the subject of lawsuits, I'm thinking particular of New York State, the lawyers and the justices and the judges who have um, uh, participated in these cases have consistently made the point that in the state constitutions, um, respectively, North Carolina and New York in particular, the two that I have spent the most time looking at, uh, those constitutions expect equitable distribution of resources and sufficient distribution of resources in order uh, that students uh, receive uh, a minimum education. The term that the lawyers use sometimes is de minimis, which is just simply a Latin way of saying ba the bare minimum. Um, and so that legal term, sound basic education, has been adopted by the court in the Leandro case, as it was in New York. Um, and uh, definitions and criteria have been established. And if it had not been for the coronavirus, uh, that's probably all we'd be talking about in North Carolina this semester. Um, uh, but uh, obviously, any conversations about education policy um, have been derailed uh, by the pandemic, and um, so we're um, we're focusing on more primary needs here, like survival and health and welfare and safety. Um, but I believe the um, the discussion will soon return to Leandro. Uh, I think the court will insist on it, and at that point if all we do is guarantee to students in North Carolina what the court defines as a sound basic education, we will not uh, assume the role of leadership in the country in public education that uh, I believe we could achieve, and which in fact North Carolina did at one time achieve. So sound basic education uh, actually uh, is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, if, um, if the state were successful in actually becoming Leandro compliant in the sense of providing a sound basic education for every student, uh, that would be unquestionably a good thing. But my argument is that we can go well beyond that. Uh, the lawyers have given us what the uh, Constitution requires, but I believe if educators had been asked to uh, set that standard, it would have looked quite different. 
And um, uh, my argument is that uh, while we go about um, assuring, let's not forget about excellence um, because that's what our children deserve. Uh, that's what each parent wants for their child. Um, if the state of North Carolina is going to be engaged in public education, which it will be uh, for sure, then we should be doing for everybody's children uh, what parents want for their own children. And um, that uh, can be succinctly described as uh, something uh, uh, in the in the neighborhood of excellence, I suppose other people will have other terms to describe it, but it's a it's a useful shorthand uh, to describe something that goes beyond just the minimum. Okay, thank you, sir. I, I really appreciate you saying what you said about you know sound basic not being enough, but shooting for excellence and, and equity is is what should be the goal. Now, in making the argument that North Carolina public schools have consistently failed Black children, you're right. The people of North Carolina elected and reelected governors and legislators who promoted the self-serving proposition of white supremacy and enacted state laws intended to sustain the political power that comes from suppression of an entire class of citizens while simultaneously denying equal education to the children of that same class. Talk to us about what you mean here. Well, I, I have uh, not made a particularly creative argument here. I think if you look at the at the history of the state, going back uh, to the earlier constitutions, it wasn't until actually the Constitution of 1971 in which the state guaranteed um, that there would be one system of public education. Prior to the 1971 amendments to the Constitution, um, Brit but equal was the law of the state. Um, was in 1971, which obviously is what, 17 years after Brown versus Board of Education, um, that the state finally, uh, at least on paper, uh, made some effort to uh, comply. Um, I don't think that any of the people who were involved in developing public education policy during that time uh, would have agreed with the assertion that they were white supremacists, but I mean, let's face it, uh, declaring that the children of color could not attend school with the white children, declaring that the teachers would be segregated, that there would be uh, separate organizations of teachers, uh, white and black, um, all of that uh, rests on a foundation of white supremacy. It was not just for convenience. It was based on on uh, racism and white supremacy. Um, uh, if you read the history, and I, I'd be happy if uh, if anybody's interested to to share some of the references that I read over the course of the last few years. There's quite a large literature out there, uh, specific to North Carolina, but also um, appropriate for um, national. Um, uh, manifestations of these same issues. If you read that history, you see that state leaders, governors, state superintendents, legislators, um, all embraced the separate but equal concept, um, while at the same time practicing separate but unequal resource allocations. Um, uh, one of the heroes in this is Anne McCall, who uh, I suspect you've either uh, read, met, or in some way encountered. Anne has uh, done a really nice job of documenting this history. 
in which, for example, one superintendent of school says, you know, we can, we can do it. We can educate these black children for a lot less. Um, we can pay their teachers less. Um, and uh, those beliefs were manifest over and over and over again. Um, even after the Brown decision was handed down in 1954, North Carolina uh, did all it could to resist compliance with that Supreme Court decision, um, uh, tried to masquerade its resistance behind state policies that um, gave the appearance of compliance, for example, um, allowing uh, black students and their families to apply to attend the white schools. Um, none of those um, applications uh, were granted. Um, the state gave um, schools the authority to, literally to shut down if they felt that they were becoming uh, too integrated uh, for the local populace. Um, as far as I know, there were no schools that were actually shut down uh, under that law, but the law was on the books. Um, uh, so it was North Carolina violating its own motto, which if you, if, you, if you have paid attention to these things, you'll know that the state motto is to be rather than to seem to be. Well, North Carolina seemed to be in compliance rather than actually being in compliance with the Brown versus Board of Education uh, and, and subsequent orders. Um, so when I, when I criticize the lead state leaders, I think there's uh, uh, more than sufficient evidence to suggest that these were people who were very clear in their opposition um, to desegregation uh, in a number of domains, but most especially in the area of public schools. Thank you so much for your, your explanation there. I couldn't help but think of, of the county that I live in, uh, Halifax County, and our involvement in the desegregation efforts of North Carolina. You know, I know that you're familiar, some of the stuff you read about uh, involves the Pearsall Plan to save our schools, or, you know, commonly known as the Pearsall Plan, uh, that Thomas Pearsall, the gentleman from Rocky Mount, uh, headed up, and there were there was a senator, state senator from Halifax County, Lunsford Crew, who was on that uh, committee that was put together. And I remember that reading in my own research that they actually looked at, I believe it was Mississippi's plan, and based North Carolina's plan some in some part, if not wholly, on Mississippi's plan of desegregation. And you know we all know the the history of uh, Mississippi, and then I think back to <laughs> I think back to uh, the U.S. versus Scotland net case, where uh, the Department of Justice actually sued a local school board here in my county because they were trying to create a white flight system with public school dollars. Uh, Julian Julian Osbrook, um, who helped get the bill passed that created that school board was uh, a member of a group called the Patriots of North Carolina who said their goal was to uphold white supremacy. This is a state senator <laughs> from, you know, from my county. And uh, it just, you know, when you were saying what you were saying, it just rung so many bells in my head. So thank you so much for yeah, that explanation. I'm sorry, to, sorry to bring up that bad news. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can fine. tell that, that it has affected you personally. And um, I, 
uh, admire uh, your uh, taking it on. Yes, sir. And, uh, so thank you. Yes, for sir. That. Now, Dr. Uh, David, you, you speak a lot about the era of desegregation and how it was followed by white flight, kind of segueing into what we were just talking about. What is that and how was it facilitated? Well, um, this has been sort of a, a, a frustrating pattern that I detected in the history is that um, uh, in every single case, when a, when a Southern state and Southern school districts attempted to uh, uh, come into compliance uh, with desegregation orders, uh, they did it by means of pupil assignment plans. Let's send these children over here and let's send this number of children over there. Um, and it was just, let's get the right uh, number of bodies of each color into each building and we'll be in compliance. Um, there are just any number of problems with that. Uh, but, but to address uh, uh, your question, um, typically what would happen is that um, white parents, not all, not all white parents, but, but sufficient numbers of white parents would adopt the view that that was not good enough for their kid. And they would find a way uh, to uh, avoid having their child uh, be assigned to uh, an integrated school. Um, they would ask for exceptions. They would ask for transfers. Um, they would do anything that they could do um, to get their child out of a school that was excessively integrated in their view. Um, and then eventually, if, if all else failed, they would move to another district uh, where the uh, integration level was more to their liking. Um, they were more able to do this, obviously, uh, than, in, than most black families, uh, just because of the economic and wealth disparities, which we're all too familiar with. Um, so the, the, the white flight in its simplest form uh, looked like just white people moving to another district. There were more subtle forms of it though, um, redrawing the district lines um, to uh, make sure that the um, residential segregation, uh, which is a, 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 that's the subject, could be a subject of a whole nother program, um, uh, that the residential segregation was reflected in um, the school segregation. Um, and when you draw the boundaries in that way, you almost guarantee uh, the result that you're going to, uh, you're going to get. So that was another uh, type of white flight. Starting in the, I'm gonna say uh, just approximately the 1990s, um, when the, uh, federal courts uh, backed away from strict enforcement of Brown. Uh, for example, declaring uh, that busing was was uh, uh, against uh, the federal uh, interpretation of what the Constitution required in terms of equal protection, um, saying that um, uh, school district lines. Uh, could not be crossed by desegregation plans. 
any number of cases. Um, uh, what happened was that the um, uh, uh, it became quite easy for white families, uh, say, to jump over a district boundary to get to a district that was more to their liking. Um, so that was another form of white flight. But they've been even more um, clever, I guess, is, is sort of the word. And if you, if you could see me, you'd see me putting up the air quotes uh, around the word clever uh, by invoking a, a new concept called school choice. School choice is, is typically put forward as a benefit to everybody. We should get to choose where our kids go to school. But the problem with it is it, it has been historically used and right up to the present used to facilitate white flight. Um, uh, and there are just any number of instances um, where... Uh, choice um, was used to justify, for example, um, uh, uh, some localities seceding from their school district. Um, we, have a, we have an example of that in North Carolina right now uh, as a result of a 2018 law that the General Assembly uh, passed, which permitted four uh, towns in North Carolina in the Charlotte area, which are all predominantly white. Uh, gave them permission to essentially secede. They didn't use the word secede, but they gave those four municipalities the right to set up a district-wide charter school, uh, which offered priority to, uh, for attendance to people who lived within that municipality. This allowed them to essentially uh, segregate themselves from the larger Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system, uh, which um, well, at one time was was uh, was a leader in desegregation. Now, not so much. Um, but that's an example of a, a workaround uh, that white parents have uh, managed uh, to uh, get on the books to uh, essentially provide cover for white flight. Um, and uh, it's an unfortunate reality and a persistent reality. Uh, that takes on lighter forms. Um, some people say that the charter movement um, uh, was created uh, for the same reason. I'm not so sure about that. I think the charter movement actually had some um, uh, legitimate purposes and benefits as it was originally um, created uh, to provide innovation and uh, piloting of um, experimental models of um, educational innovation. Um, I think the unfortunate reality as well documented by uh, Sonny Ladd and others um, at the uh, Duke Sanford uh, uh, Institute for Public Policy that the charter schools um, have made a significant contribution to the resegregation of the, of the schools um, all under the banner of school choice. Okay, now race and more specifically the racial composition of schools matters. Now Creed has produced research looking at the ways race influences access and outcomes. But in your work, specifically looking at segregation, what are some of the ways it shows up? Uh, well, it, unfortunately, the, um, the schools where you can clearly identify them as being uh, 
black schools, not by design, but by de facto, um, uh, there are a number of differences that are uh, that come along uh, with those designations. Um, uh, uh, I've classified them uh, in terms of education resources, uh, 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 community context, as well as um, uh, outcomes uh, for pupils. Um, I think the the most significant one is the difference in the credentials of the of the teacher workforces in those schools. Um, we know that the single most effective factor within schools and the, and the one that schools have control over is uh, the quality of the teacher. Um, uh, Linda Darling Hammond um, has done uh, some significant work uh, on summarizing all this and it's again it's one of those references I'd be happy to to share if, if you're interested. Um, showing that in the schools that can be identified as black schools, meaning that's uh, people have different definitions. Some people say if it's more than 50% black or if it's more than 75% black, um, whatever one's definition is, those schools tend to have teachers who are less likely to be licensed by the state um, less, li less likely to be licensed in the specific discipline that they're assigned to teach. Uh, they tend to be um, uh, less experienced, uh, which translates um, into less effective. Um, they tend to be evaluated um, uh, by their superiors as being um, uh, less likely to be in the high category of effective teachers, more likely to be in the category of teachers requiring uh, some improvement. Um, the differences also um, uh, show up in the, in the uh, pedagogy in, uh, in the schools that, uh, again, uh, the ones that are identified as the predominantly black schools. Uh, the instruction tends to be more likely to be at a lower cognitive level emphasizing basic skills rather than high-end critical thinking and so forth, problem solving at the high end of cognition. Um, those schools um, also have um, a curriculum which is not necessarily uh, uh, a, a critical cur uh, curriculum, um, but uh, tends to uh, stick more to the basics. Um, those schools have fewer advanced uh, academic classes. The schools have, uh, when they do have the academic, uh, academically advanced classes, they have fewer seats available. Um, so there are any number of disadvantages um, uh, for the students who attend those schools. Um, uh, and the outcomes uh, are exactly what you'd expect. Um, those um, uh, differences in educational opportunity produce differences in outcomes. Um, those students uh, score less on the state's standardized test. Uh, they're uh, less likely to be um, uh, prepared for post-secondary education. Um, there are also, um, on the flip side, there are some positive effects that have been shown for uh, for children of, of both races, white and black, who attend desegregated schools, they tend to have better attitudes toward race. They tend to come out being more experienced in 
crossing over racial lines and working together in in teams and problem solving. So um, not only are the uh, uh, segregated schools uh, disadvantaged, um, uh, the other kind of evidence uh, uh, argues for desegregation in that there are advantages to the kids who attend the desegregated schools. Advantages, by the way, um, that re uh, are noticeable in multi-generations. Um, uh, wonderful work by Professor Rucker Johnson uh, from the University of California showing that the children and grandchildren of children uh, uh, the children and grandchildren of students who attend desegregated schools have life outcomes um, that are more advantaged than children who attended segregated schools. So it's a um, it's not just a one generation thing. It's a multi generation um, uh, set of advantages uh, that come from desegregation. Again, your comments make bells go off in my head when you were talking about the disadvantages of attending those segregated schools and those segregated districts. I can't help but think of, again, my neck of the woods, Northeast North Carolina, where you have um, a high number when it comes to teacher attrition and teacher uh, mobility in terms of teachers leaving, you know, uh, the districts that they work in. A lot of those districts being predominantly uh, black districts and being historically low achieving. So again, you know, you're just setting off bells in my head. Now, race is not entirely absent from the West Ed report. It acknowledges the need for greater teacher and leadership diversity and the benefits of educators of color. It also calls out that the poorest districts are excuse me, unsurprisingly composed of black and brown students. So talk to us about what is still missing. Mm, well, just about everything. <laughs> um, I, I, I appreciate your pointing that out. And, and I wanna say at the outset here that um, my uh, my paper, The Missing Pages, um, is offered with great respect to West Ed. I, I, I feel it would be unfair to suggest uh, that their report was incomplete in any, in any way. They did what the court asked them to do. Um, uh, then the court was basically looking at the issues uh, that were central to the Leandro case and asked West Ed um, to address those issues. So, um, uh, uh, to their credit, the fact that they mentioned race at all uh, should be should be mentioned, and um, uh, they should be applauded for that. Um, I think what what uh, m might have been uh, added, for example, if they had been uh, uh, charged with uh, uh, addressing the racial issue, might be. Um, uh, a, a favorite subject of mine, which is testing and measurement. Um, uh, it, so much depends upon the uh, test scores that schools receive, um, uh, resources to uh, personnel now, you know, both to teachers and to principals um, are based on test scores. Um, uh, schools can be um, uh, held up as being uh, uh, failing if if their scores do not uh, reach uh, the state's expected levels. Um, so much depends upon that. Um, uh, people buy houses in uh, neighborhoods that are 
districted for schools with uh, that have high test scores and and the result of that is that the tax base um, in high performing schools uh, is elevated uh, uh, compared to the tax base in districts where the test scores uh, suggest that there's some problems so a lot depends on them here's here's my argument about that and what maybe a uh, another report uh, might want to address and that is that the tests that are being used currently to make those determinations um, in North Carolina have never been subjected to um, a thorough validation and I'm using validation in the technical term in the technical sense here to suggest um, is there a strong um, and defensible relationship between scores on these tests and real-life outcomes? Um, and by real-life outcomes, I, I mean those things that happen out of school um, and beyond the school years, in terms of uh, post-secondary preparation, in terms of um, career opportunities, but also a more fundamental measure of, of life success, which is participation in our, in our democracy um, and in our community. Um, it would be nice to see if um, those scores could be shown to have a high correlation with um, uh, adults' uh, level of participation uh, in their unity. I, I'm not aware of anything uh, even close to that. Uh, if someone uh, has evidence of that, I, sh I wish they would publish it because it's, it's sorely lacking. Um, we know that uh, these scores reflect um, the socioeconomic status of the schools uh, that the children attend. Um, and because uh, children of color are more likely to be in the, in the lower socioeconomic uh, strata, um, uh, they're also disadvantaged by the fact that they're being tested um, uh, in this way uh, on, on tests that have not been shown to really be predictive of the kinds of outcomes we'd like to, uh, for our children and for our schools. I want to give a lot of uh, credit here to former state senator Leslie Winner. Um, who is a member of the governor's uh, Leandro Commission and very active um, in uh, uh, the um, implementation um, of the decision. Um, she's made the case, I think, strongly that um, our democracy really depends upon having schools that are more equitably uh, 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 addressed and that uh, if we want our public schools to function as a uh, support to our democracy, we should be measuring their effectiveness in doing that and not just their um, uh, 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 basic skills that can be um, measured using a multiple choice uh, exam. So that's a long-winded answer to your question again, Rodney. I apologize for that, but um, I think so much uh, uh, attention is not given where it should be, um, and you know we uh, we tend to focus on what we can measure uh, rather than what we should be measuring. And so I would make the argument that um, a a true um, reflection 
of how well the state is providing a sound basic education, if that's what our goal is, uh, would require uh, more attention uh, to uh, sophisticated forms of measurement of, of outcomes. Powerful, powerful. Well, uh, Doctor, thank you for your time today. The paper is West Edsley Andrew Report, The Missing Pages. Again, as we were talking earlier, I am a product of Halifax County Schools where the Leandro lawsuit was originally filed. My children are students in the district. I'm a former employee of the district. And just to know that someone took the time to address the racial component of this case uh, means a great deal to me on a personal level. So thank you again so much for your work. And uh, as we prepare to close, it's tradition on this program to ask guests to cast a vision for the future. One that will inspire change, not just based on what we want to destroy, but what we want to build. And we call that radical imagination. Now, what is your radical imagination for the state's Leandro response in the next 20 years? It's a great question, Rodney, and thank you for your kind words and for, for all that you've been doing uh, uh, on behalf of your district, but also on behalf of the state. In my uh, paper, um, uh, I have a, a preface which introduces uh, the, the paper to the reader, and it closes with a quote uh, from a book that's not an educational book, it's a business book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, many people in education have actually read it, though I used to see it on everybody's bookshelf. Um, it's essential, I'll, I'll give a very quick uh, uh, summary of it. It's about uh, the factors that led some companies in America uh, to go from being good companies to being great companies. Um, Someone asked Jim Collins, uh, why should we bother for greatness when, when good is probably good enough? And his answer, which is quoted uh, verbatim uh, in the paper, comes, uh, boils down to this. It's really not that much harder to be great than it is to be good. As long as you're doing all this work, you may as well strive for greatness. Um, and uh, if, you're, if you're not looking to greatness uh, in the area in which you're spending all your uh, work time, you might be in the wrong business, is what, he, what his argument is. So my, my radical imagination is that North Carolina's schools will be looked at by not just the rest of the country, but by the world as being great schools, uh, because we decided to do it. Uh, not because we just happened to get there, but because we decided to make our schools great and uh, uh, we were able uh, to accomplish that. But more uh, to the point of our conversation, we have to have great schools for everybody's children, not just the uh, children of those who can afford it, not just for those uh, children uh, who are white, uh, but the, um, the idea of inclusiveness or uh, educational excellence for everybody's children um, is uh, unfortunately a, a radical imagination. It shouldn't have to be, um, but that's mine. So thank you for asking the question. I'm happy to share that with you. Thank you again, Dr. Cooper, for your, your time today. And uh, that wraps up our interview. Thank you for tuning in. I, again, am your guest host, Rodney D. Pierce, standing in for James E. Ford.